From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. In this week's special From the Archives edition, we're looking back to the 46th New York Film Festival in 2008, when Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler premiered as the closing night selection. The drama went on to garner widespread acclaim and many awards, including the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Drama for Mickey Rourke. During the New York Film Festival, Aronofsky joined the festival's then-director, Richard Pena, for one of our HBO Director's Dialogues. There he discussed his childhood, his interest in creative reinvention, his approach to directing actors, and much more. Let's go to that now. Okay, uh, jump right in. Um, I grew up in New York City, Manhattan, Queens. You grew up in New York City, Brooklyn. I know what movies were for me, how I kind of get into them. How did you get into them? Well, there wasn't much, um, you know, anything beyond uh, sort of the typical Hollywood fair growing up in Brooklyn. We didn't really have art theaters back then. BAM didn't exist. Um, And also BAM was on the other side of Brooklyn, so it really (laughs) was really far away. Um, But growing up in the 70s, it was kind of a very different type of cinema. But I would definitely say I'm a product of the 80s and the George Lucas uh, Spielberg version. I think that was, I remember. What were the first it, movies that really stayed with you? I, I can remember like there was some conceptual art of E.T. that a friend of mine got his hands on and he brought it to school and everyone was like, what is that all about? But I, I don't think I was really swept up in it. I remember going to a sneak preview of, they had a sneak preview of E.T. at the Oceana in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. And me and my friend cut the line, and there was a huge line, and somehow we cut it. And but the the <laughs> what happened is, the people from the it, it was basically a, a, an eight o'clock screening or something, and the people at the six o'clock movie stayed in their seats, so that they could see the eight o'clock thing. So only they only let like 15, 20 people. So it was a, almost a riot outside on the street. <laughs> so I didn't get to see it. But I think for me, where it changed was. Um, I went to, there was this one shopping mall in Brooklyn called King's Plaza, if anyone knows it. And uh, we were going to see some, like Rocky Three or something, and it was sold out. And there was this picture of a goofy looking guy with a, had a little Brooklyn on his visor. And we're like, what's that? And uh, we went in there and we were late and it was packed. And there was only a few seats and it turned out it was She's Gotta Have It by Spike Lee. And we walked in late, and it was during that kind of montage of all the guys trying to pick up uh, Nola Darling, you know, with their, with their, their lines, lines. yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was just sort of stunned into what, what is this? And I think that was like the first time I ever was exposed to independent film. And, uh, and I definitely had a taste for the alternative, so it kind of just sort of... I got very excited by cinema at that point. And did you start at that point looking for films by certain people, or...? I think that started a um, that started like a quest, and it, it continued. I, you know, back then it was you know, video stores were the big thing. So, you know, there was a whole section of foreign films, and then that kind of started to open up how I got into film. And then I found Fellini and Kurosawa, and then I was all set for a long time. Still haven't watched all the Kurosawa, but getting there. Getting there. So tell me a little bit about your time at Harvard. I know something about the education there. They take you through a process of photography and eventually into film. And also animation is very big up there. Yeah. Well, actually, you can jump right into uh, film. Um, But when I got, when I was a freshman at Harvard, I was, you know, a little embarrassed to take an arts class because I think, you know, I think my parents would have been a little bit, you know, paying $20,000 a year for arts and crafts, so they were having a problem with that. So, but my roommate was an animator. Um, he was a great artist, and uh, I still actually work with him. He does the digital effects now in my films and is a director himself. And um, he would end the year with, you know, a movie, and he would start the year with an idea and end it with a movie, and I would, uh, you know, end the year with a bunch of B minuses on papers, so there was something wrong. So this, so my sophomore year, I started to take um, drawing, which was great. And I had an amazing t- professor there who basically taught you how to see the world. 
Um, and it was really, I mean, it was just, you know, how to look at negative space and just to really change the way you perceive things. And it was a great education. And, and then I wanted to take, um, I didn't know if I wanted to do sculpture or film. And I applied for the sculpture class and the film class. And I got into the film class, but I didn't get into the sculpture class. So that's how it started. And that was junior year of college. And that was, and the Harvard program is sort of out of Rob, Rob, um, Ross McElvey and uh, kind of personal documentary. And that was before Michael Moore and before it's kind of taken over as a form of documentary. It, I don't know if you've ever seen Ross's films, but the idea of that you as the filmmaker have to be represented in the documentary. You have to, it has to come from a point of view. So that was kind of the, full, the kind of education we started with, which was really cinema verite heavy. And, uh, and then um, I just basically, it took off from there. It was the only thing that kept me you going. You also worked at Harvard, I believe, with the great Hungarian director, Miklos Jancsó. Yeah, Jancsó, our, our second year of film, they bring in a uh, guest uh, um, lecturer the year before was Raul Ruiz, who I got to meet a little bit. And then um, they, both, they brought Miklos, who's great, it was just amazing. He didn't, claimed he didn't speak any English. And uh, <laughs> so we had a translator in class to you know, go from French to English. And uh, he was just great. Great guy and definitely um, many lessons taught. I mean, Yang Show, just to give a background, because a lot of people don't know his work, he would do these, he was the first guy to do these super long takes, and he would do these 30 minute long takes where basically the camera would be spinning around and it'd be a house, and then the camera would come off, and a person talking on a telephone, the camera would turn, and then there'd be, you know, the peasants in the fields dancing and celebrating, <laughs> and then helicopters would zoom over. And then when you got all the way around, the house would be gone, but the person would still be talking on the phone. So he was the first one to really do those in-camera, um, you know, operas. Yeah. That's great. What about film education in general? Uh, you also spent some time at the AFI? Yeah, after, because um, after, I only got two years of film at Harvard because I started late. Um, even though my last, my, my senior, I just spent making my first narrative short. And uh, I treated that as my thesis. And, um, but then I kind of didn't have that much experience because I only did two years of film. And uh, one teacher there was like, you know, you should think about the AFI, which I had never heard of. And um, I didn't want to go to one of the film school programs because it felt like I didn't really want to go back to Super 8 films and you know, learn how to use a steam bag because I had been doing like two, three years of like a lot of I was basically lived inside the uh, editing room. So um, I liked the AFI program because it was more of a, a conservatory where you basically, you, you're, you're, right, you're thrown right into making stuff. And that's why I was interested was, even though it was on video um, back then, that was kind of a big no-no. Um, it was, uh, I thought you, you made three short films in the first year, so it sounded very intensive. So I just wanted to work with actors and work on that. I, I, I felt that that was my, I had never had experience working with actors. I didn't understand acting. So I went to the AFI to kind of learn about acting and actors. And have you done any teaching yourself? I have a bit. I mean, my parents are both um, retired school teachers, so I think it's in the blood. And... Um, I love it. I mean, and I, you get so much out of it, you know. So, yeah, I, I really enjoy it. What do you think is important for the education of a filmmaker? What would you advise somebody who's thinking about wanting to There's study so film? Yeah. <laughs> well, nine-tenths of it is persistence, you know. It really is because... Uh, How about watching movies? Do you think that people should have a really wide background? Do you think that... Yeah. Has that been part... I mean, certainly, I think, been part of your Come education. to the Walter Reed. That's it. That's it. <laughs> you got it. Which I, I can't tell you how much stuff I've stolen off the screens of the Walter Reed. You know, you get, you totally, I mean, you know, watching as much, you know, stuff, especially new stuff, or stuff that, you know, is really pushing things. And that can mean at any point in history, because people were doing radical stuff for a very long time. Um, it just basically kind of gets regurgitated by people, you know. And... Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's huge to, you know, watch as much as you can. Mm -hmm. Once you finish with school and whatever you have to, as they say, break into the business, what was yeah. it? This is, I guess, about the mid-90s for you, 95, 96. What, what was, was the earlier. landscape a little earlier? Yeah, I left film school like in 93 or oh. so. Well, it was what was the landscape like? 
Well, uh, you know, there had been examples of guys that did nothing, that made a film out of nothing, you know. Right when I came out of film school, I think it was, I remember seeing El Mariachi, and then, so that means Clerks was already out and Slacker was already out. So there was that, that had been done. So everyone knew that it was possible with $20,000 or 7,000 in El Mariachi to go and, you know, break out. So the route was there. Um, but it was very hard, you know. Um, and I stayed in L.A. a little bit too long, past my welcome. And uh, then eventually I came back to New York and, um, you know, just really... Uh, I mean, it took, from graduating to making a film was about four or five years, which seems like a short amount of time in retrospect, but at the time it was pretty hell because, you know, you don't know what you're doing, you know, you're not, you don't have any income coming in. There's all the pressure to get a real life and do something. And so there were a few pitfalls where I almost fell in and never turned back. I got, I got offered a job at Activision, and I'd probably be up here as a billionaire right now. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, I, it was a lucky thing that I didn't take that job. You know? Did you keep your hand in with music videos or anything like that? I, did, I tried. You know, at the, I kind of pride myself now in being able to say I've never done a commercial or a music video. And I, I say it like... Look, I've never sold out, but that's because I couldn't get a job doing a music video or a commercial, you know. But I'm not doing it now that I can do them. I'm not doing them, which I guess it means something. But um, I don't know. I just uh, I ha I don't I didn't have that many friends in bands. I mean, I tried to find people that I could shoot stuff, and it just didn't happen. <laughs> didn't happen. It was very tough, yeah. you know. Do you think the landscape has changed a lot since then, since the mid-'90s, for oh, someone just radical. trying to break in? Oh, yeah, it's radical. I mean, that's the main thing I teach when I go to film school, because you meet these... First of all, you know, the, how many film students are here? Are you? Not that many, some. But, you know, they're all precious about shooting on film, which is a big joke, you know, um, to me. I mean, I, anyone from Kodak here? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean... If I was making pie today, I, it, first of all, it would be something very, very different, and it definitely wouldn't have been shot on film. You know, there's no way I'd be shooting film as a first-time filmmaker. So um, it's really radical. Are you nostalgic about film at all, about celluloid? Absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, look, the wrestler is shot on, you know, Super 16, and I think that adds to the, you know, uh, grit of the film. And I think it would have been very hard to give that grit with video. So. I think there's something with film that, you know, if you can afford it and you can, um, you know, make, you know, execute it so that it looks good, then, um, you know, there's a lot to it. But that doesn't mean you can't do... I mean, you look at Fincher's uh, uh, Zodiac, which was just remarkable because it was... I couldn't tell the difference, and I was staring, looking. There was one shot that I saw, and then I met the DP, Harris Savides, and I was like... You know, there was, it was incredible, except for one shot, and he knew what shot it was. <laughs> so it was, so uh, it just shows, you know, it's like, it's totally, you can make it work in any way now. It's just how, what your budget is and what your limitations are. But the land, I, I was on a panel with, um, you remember Jeff Lipsky? Sure, of course. And uh, I still give Jeff, pro he's a kind of, what is Jeff doing now? Do you have any He's idea? directed two films, actually. Has he really? Okay. Yeah. So I... I he was a big kind of distributor back then, right? He was one of the first independent... Of October, right? Yeah. It was October, But even yeah. before that, he uh, worked on the distribution of John Cassavetti's film. Oh, really? Oh, wow, yeah. yeah. Anyway, he's a great ago. icon of independent yeah. cinema, and I was on a panel with him, and he was saying there will never be a, um, a feature shot on video release. This was the year before Blair Witch. And I was like, I was like, I just, I, ta I went right out. I'm like, you are so wrong. I was like, there's kids right now, and they're about to come out. Just you wait and see. Anyway, so it's, I think it's completely changed the landscape of how to break in. And also it's just, well. In terms of the fact that it's lowered the bar financially, or? Yeah, well, <clears throat> clearly, you know, when I was doing it, there were, I don't know, a few hundred people trying to do it, just as far as the, the, the scale of how many people are trying to do it, because, you know, there's so many people who are trying to be, you know, working to be filmmakers and are filmmakers now that it's, it's a very different landscape. And also, there's a new chapter happening, which is this, you know, I can't tell you how many people are coming, it's like, coming up to me going, no, you're the only independent film of the year. And I'm like, oh, God, is it that terrible? You know, it's like, that's how bad it is in America, where it's just like, you know, you know that whole Mark Gill speech a few months ago. It's just a very tough time for independent film. Mm -hmm. But it's, 
It's it's way I I know that it's waves, and I'm sure you remember. You can see I've, I remember a few of these waves where, you know, and that Hollywood's going to make a bunch of crap movies now that are really big. And some of them will be good, but then eventually they'll become a hunger for something different and alternative, and some smart, creative filmmakers will come up and fill that hole. So it'll it's secular. In terms of your own work, you start with Pi and looking them over for you know, to get together for our conversation. In a way, it was interesting to see how there almost sometimes are two films going on. One is the story that we're seeing, and the other is the kind of visual style that you bring. And in an interesting way, they often sort of clash. They sort of, you know, sort of jar up against each other and whatever. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that, because the film seemed to have such a visual plan that right. seems to be almost <coughs> not... A, Sort of parallel, I guess would be the word, to whatever the narrative storytelling plan is. Well, I always came from the um, concept that, you know, the, um, that every film has its own visual language and that you could, you know, help tell a story as a filmmaker, you know, um, with a visual language. And so, you know, Pi was... Um, I think my first three films, well, especially Pie and Requiem, were really about using the camera almost as like um, an impressionist would use a, a paintbrush and just sort of help tell the um, the state of mind of the characters with the camera and with the sound to really sort of help bring the audience into that subjective experience. And that was sort of a goal early on was how to, it was, we had such a limited budget, you know, I just wanted to limit the scope of the film by saying, you know, all I'm going to do is show the subjective experience of this one character. And then when Requiem showed up as a possibility, <clears throat> one of the major things I was interested in Requiem was that the way Hubert Selby Jr., the author of the book, wrote, it was he was really putting you in the mindset of these four <coughs> characters. And for me, it was exciting to sort of have now four subjective point of views. And it was complicating things, but kind of building on um, what I had started to sort of explore in Pi. So that's like the opening scene of Requiem for a Dream. Whoever, who, for people who've seen it, it's like a split screen. And that came out from first reading. I realized, oh, I have these two point of views. How cool would it be to show them both on the screen, screen at the same time? One thing that really, for me, links up those earlier films with, say, uh, The Wrestler, which I know most of you haven't seen just yet, is there's a way in which I think, even when you're talking about, you know, subjective experience, you really focus on the sensual. And there's really something almost tactile about your movies when you're even, when you're trying to recreate these mental states. Okay. <laughs> That's good. Um... That important yeah. for you, that idea? I mean, something yeah. that goes beyond language, something that goes beyond something you can sort of articulate. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's just, um, you get, you, you go a lot, you, I mean, I don't know. I think the reason people go to see films, there's a couple of reasons, but one of the major reasons is so that, you know, you can get an extreme close-up of Paul Newman's eyes and you can stare at them emoting and not be at all self-conscious. You can just sort of sit back and watch that person. Because, you know, even us having a conversation, right, well, we're kind of performing. But <clears throat> when, you when you hang out with someone and talking to them, you barely make eye contact with them because you're very self-conscious and you're kind of looking away. And, you know, then every once in a while you'll tune in and then you realize they're looking at you, so you got to look away and do something. <laughs> You know, and uh, when you're looking away, that's kind of your reality. And I kind of wanted to try to capture is what that reality is, is that, you know, you're noticing what's happening at your fingertips at, you know, you know, there's so much else happening in a scene besides what immediately seems like is happening. So I think pulling that hopefully is what you're talking about, trying to connect to that. Yeah, something I Does guess. Does that make me, any sense yeah. at all? I was trying to think about something that just went beyond sort of like this means this. That right. there's, a, you know, that there's something, you know, pre you know, feelings and whatever that you right. often can't articulate. Well, that's good because low budget can't afford those feelings. Those feelings. <laughs> can't pay for can't the pay rights. Can't pay those emotions. <laughs> can't pay for those rights. Yeah. Moving from pie to requiem was yeah. also a move from black and white to color. What was that like for you? It scared the shit out of me. Um, because, um, you know, controlling the palette, it, it, 
was something I'd never really tried to do. Um, but that's when you get, you surround yourself with professionals that are really good at what they do. And you spend a lot of time talking about what the film's about. And then hopefully the artists that work with you can interpret that and add something to that. And it's those types of surprises. It's like in The Wrestler, which many people haven't seen, it's like when that, when my uh, wardrobe supervisor brought me the green jacket that Mickey buys for his daughter, at first I was like, that's really ugly. That's going to be terrible. And now it's a kind of a lot of people really like that moment in the film. You'll all see it. <clears throat> and what I realized she was doing, which I've only realized recently, is that it actually matches the color of his trunks. So it was a subtle thing like that that was way over my head that she was thinking about. <laughs> it was a good contribution, which I didn't even realize till a few weeks ago what she was doing. So, yeah. <clears throat> Talk a little bit about the writing process. I mean, some of your films, you've had a screenplay credit, some you haven't. Yeah. Well, I've always uh, had a hard time not initiating a project and just showing up and doing something. And I think that's what, combined, that's what connects all four films. The first three I wrote, and um, one of them I co-wrote with Hubert Selby Jr. Um, and then, uh, but this one was an idea I had for a really long time. When I left film school, I made a list of ideas for movies, and The Wrestler was one of them. Um, and then I went through a couple of writers till we found Rob Siegel, and he did a great job. And it was an interesting, it was the first time I did it. You know, Soderbergh actually told me at one point not that I hang out with Soderbergh, don't worry. It's not, but the one time I met him, he was like, uh, he said, uh, he said, oh, you know, it's, he, that he was really liberated when he stopped writing everything. So it kind of stuck in my head. It was an interesting point. And, uh, and um, I think there's something really exciting about having another, once again, another collaborator to help you. And there's definitely, there's a, you know, Rob was a writer of, uh, was one of the original editors of The Onion. So there was a level of humor that I could never bring that he really captured that I think added a layer to the film that we didn't, that, you know, that was fresh. So it was good. What's it like working with Hubert Selby? It was, you know, <laughs> so many things to say about Cubby. Cubby was what his nickname was. And he was, uh, you know, he was a truly magical guy that, uh, you know, he's one of a kind. Did he have a love for movies? He loved movies. He would go to the movies all the time in L.A. and watch movies. And um, it was a great, you know, I mean, the first time I met him, it was, uh, it, it was that whole thing, never uh, meet your heroes. Because he was a big hero, and I went, and he lived in this, he lived in L.A., and he lived in this one apartment block that looked exactly like it should have been in Brooklyn, <laughs> not in uh, L.A. <laughs> and, you know, he buzzed me into through the, you know, some chicken wire metal grate. And I came in, and there was this, you know, really super skinny, tall guy with his ribs sticking out in a pair of whitey tighties. He's like, Darren, how you doing? <laughs> and then he handed me a poem um, from um, Lao Tzu that he had just translated. And I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> I couldn't understand it. I was just like, that's weird, you know? And then <clears throat> that was, I, I actually met him when I was in film school because I, um, I did one of my short films I did at the AFI was based on one of his short stories. And so I tracked them down, and the Writers Guild gave me his phone number. And that's how accessible he was. Years later, of course, we became much t closer and, and more, uh, much deeper collaboration. And uh, then I realized why he was one of my heroes. And he went back up on the mantelpiece, you know. <laughs> but he's, um, he was just a very honest, giving guy who was not precious with his work and was really open to collaboration. And um, I don't know, funny, last night, actually, I ran into an actress who was in Pie and Requiem, and she sat next to him at the can screening of um, <clears throat> Requiem. And she said that every time something sick, sick happened on the screen, she just heard him go, hey. <laughs> 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 I've never heard that story, so I... <laughs> <laughs> it was a funny story. Did he have any thoughts about the visual style of the film? He pretty no, much left that No, he left you. that completely to myself. I mean, when I did his short, <laughs> The Fortune Cookie, it was based on one of his short uh, stories called Fortune Cookie. I think he, it, it had a lot of, it, this was when I was a film student, so it had a lot of um, visual 
stuff. And it, I, he was like, well, it's not very much like my short story. And I was like, yeah, okay. It was kind of a slap, yeah. And then, uh, but I think Requiem, he really dug. I know he did, because I've heard it. And so that was a big, um, that was a big moment for me. Your career has also sort of gone along with the sort of, I guess, rise or acceptance of uh, offline editing and things like that, Abbott's. How important has that been for you in terms yeah. of your crafting, especially, I'd say, in Requiem, where yeah. the editing is so crucial? It's radical. You know, I could only... Because um, you start off with Steambecks. Yeah, absolutely. Deal. And student films were Steambecks. Um, Pi was... Uh, Pi we did on an Avid, um, but uh, all my student stuff was on... Um, was with Steambeck, so I know I, I went through that whole pro I still have the scars, which every person who's worked on them has, you know, from cutting yourself on. But the, um, I think it's, you know, it's like what word processing does to, um, you know, the typewriter. It's a, it's a similar situation where you have, the, the danger is, is that you write to, when you write on a word processor and then you print it out, it looks like a novel, when it's not. <laughs> So you have to, you know, you have to remember that rewriting is really important and reworking is really important. But the amount, the speed of how, of you, how you can check out something is amazing. So I, there's two ways of looking at it. There's the idea that you actually think through something really, really hard before you execute it because if you're on film, it would take you two days to execute a certain cut versus, you know, 12 minutes. Um, so... Um, you get to see a lot of different options, and you can really play around a lot. Um, but it, it's definitely been a change. I had a long time where I resisted it, you know, because I think when you make a cut on film, you know, you're picking that very frame that's going to the next frame. So it's 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 a much more exact science, you know. When you watch these avid editors now, they just sort of chop it. But then I try to make us always go back and look at each frame where we're leaving on each frame and where we're coming in, because I think that making those marry is really important. What kind um, of, I don't know if instructions is the right word, but what kind of things do you talk to the editor about before he or she starts their work? Um, <clears throat> well, I've had different situations. On Requiem, we, couldn't, we didn't hire someone until we were two, three weeks in. We couldn't find anyone. And then I happened to stumble on this guy, Jay Rabinowitz, who Jay, is yeah. Yeah, Jim's, Jim Jarmusch's editor. And, <clears throat> a great New York editor. I was just very lucky to get him. And so, but his first cut, his assemblage was terrible because he had no idea how I was covering scenes. Because I definitely, that film is not, you don't have the wide shot and the two close-ups. It's not done that way. So he really didn't know how to assemble it. So it was a real long process for him to uh, catch up. But then on the fountain, he understood what was going on and... Um, so that worked out great, and then, I mean, on, uh, I, I, now I'm at the place where I'm hiring people that sort of get what we're doing. So the new guy we hired was um, actually the visual effects editor on The Fountain, and I just really was impressed by his work, and um, so I gave him a shot to cut The Wrestler, and he did a great job. Mm -hmm. And how about music? You've been working with Clint yeah. Mansell for a long time. Well, Clint was, um, when I met him, was unemployed, and uh, super depressed, and um, but it was a great musician, and uh, and um, we met him through friends, and uh, he's been on through all the films, and I think the the score he did on the wrestler, which hopefully you all see, is I, you know, probably the least amount of time wise as far as a score. He, you know, most of the films he's done 60, 70 minutes of music on this film, it's a lot less. Um, but it was probably the most difficult because um, it was hard to make uh, music that um, didn't push the emotion too much or pull the emotion too much. And so he basically had to write very kind of ambiguous, moody type of music. It was a tough job. To ask you about a couple of projects you've been associated with. I know for a while you were associated with a possible Batman version. Mm. Well, that was a lot of hype that got a little out of control because of this thing called the internet. <laughs> but um, basically, when I was on Requiem, they were like, I was shooting Requiem, and they said, hey, you want to work on the next Batman? I was like, yeah, sure. You know, I was making a $5 million film in the Bronx, so I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, but the reality of the whole, that whole thing was I, was I was basically, after I got off of Requiem, I wanted to do a film called The Fountain. And... Um, 
usually I'm a pretty one-track mind, but I was advised that to make something like the fountain uh, coming off of a $5 million, you know, art house, NC-17 film, um, it might be good to be associated with a bigger title. So I took the writing job on Batman and then basically had to live with all the internet, you know, backlash of that. But I was basically focused on making the rest, uh, on making the fountain for all that time. So it was really, I didn't really do that much work on it. I basically focused on the fountain. Did you have some ideas for Batman or places you wanted to bring the story? The, my, our pitch was to, because it was coming off of, uh, it was that whole Schumacher um, mm -hmm. stuff. And uh, so my thing was just to ground it in reality. So even more than where Chris Nolan did, which I thought he did a beautiful job with it, I wanted to, um, I just was more interested in complete reality of what it would be, what, it, what a real man putting on tights really meant. And that was the whole pitch. <laughs> So it was kind of like, it was good. I pitched it as, uh, you know, the taxi driver of uh, Batman. <laughs> so for some reason, the studio didn't make it. I don't know why. <laughs> you know? So conservative. I was like, well, look, there should be no, you know, I was like, the Batmobile should be a, um, you know, should be a Lincoln Continental with a, with a school bus engine in it, you know, that's it. She'd just be souped up, you know. You know, that was the whole idea. It was like, how did someone in, real, in the real world become a crime fighter? And they just didn't go for it. Like, what, no Batmobile? That means no toy. What are we gonna do? You know? I was like, well, it could be a Lincoln Continental with engines coming out of it. Go. So, but that's that. So, basically, I wasn't really involved. I mean, the bottom line was I was making the fountain all that time, and that was sort of my focus and my goal. I also heard that you have some connection with Satoshi Khan's film Perfect Blue. Yeah, well, I loved it, and um, but uh, then I started to work on and develop it with two different companies, and then as I got, the, how did you want you want to develop as live action? Or? Yeah, yeah, wow. to turn live action into it, and then um, well, it, it's a really good project, especially. I mean, at the time when I was developing, I was like, well, because it's about I don't know if, who's seen Perfect Blue, but it's about a a pop star, um, a Japanese pop star who basically um, doesn't want to be a pop star anymore and wants to become an actress and basically kind of loses her mind as she becomes an actress, which at the time was like, wow, how do we translate that for America? Like, we don't have pop stars, because we didn't. At the time, it was like, this is, you know, right before Britney Spears, I guess, and it's changed so much. I mean, it's even more appropriate for America now because there's, they make pop stars every three weeks. Um, but, uh, uh, I, I ended up developing for a while, and then I found out the people who had the rights didn't really have the rights. Yeah. So, but it was just very complicated because there's a book, and then there's a film, and so. But it's you know it's a good project, and it's still floating around. Yeah. And you have a strong interest in graphic novels too, as yeah. a, a source. Are there any projects that might stem from that? I don't know. I mean, I I got a lot of inspiration from graphic novels when I was a, just learning how to become a filmmaker in in college. I spent. Um, I spent a lot of time looking at a lot of comics, and what was great about it was that, you know, you know, comic artists can stick the camera anywhere because there's, there's no limitation, there's no physics, you know. They don't have to stick a 35-millimeter camera, you know, 75 feet in the air. They can just draw it. So um, I got a lot of inspiration on, on camera work from a lot of artists, you know. The, I don't know if anyone knows Love and Rockets, Los Bros Hernandez. And they were a big influence. They, they're these great um, uh, Latino uh, artists from LA that just, um, they're great comics. Anyway, so it's worth still checking out. Cool. Let's open it up to our uh, assembled audience here. Yes, sir. This first question followed up on what Aronofsky said about Requiem for a Dream being difficult for his editor. Well, I think in most films, you basically. Um, you know, the classic coverage is, uh, if it's me and Richard talking, there's one camera there that's a wide shot, and then there'll be a close-up on Richard and a close-up on me, and then you chop it up, depending on where you want to be. Um, but I, tr you know, I think um, there's very, I mostly, I'm not into, especially in Requiem and what I was doing there, I wasn't really interested in wide shots and master shots. 
Um, so there's very few master shots in the entire film. Sometimes there'll be a, an entire scene will be shot with one wide shot, but rarely did I use that as coverage. So an editor without that often doesn't know where to start a scene, but I usually would go, go into it knowing how, what line I wanted to start in and how I wanted to do it and how the scene would proceed. But it's basically, I mean, if you watch the film, it's a lot of close-ups and, um, you know, it was uh, really thought out how the close-ups would connect between scene after scene after scene. Yes? Are you still attached to the RoboCop remake? And if yes, what are some of your plans for it? Let me just repeat it for everybody. Uh, is, is Darren still attached to the RoboCop remake? Or mm. That's a project that I actually am attached to. It's, <laughs> it's um, yeah, it's, I'm attached and uh, we're working on a screenplay. So that's all I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, back there. Uh, I, I read that, uh... This person asked about Aronofsky's experience writing his first feature, which he ultimately ditched in order to make Pi instead. Um, it's a good question. And it's something that I've, I, sometimes I teach about is that I think a lot of people write a, a failed first screenplay. So if you're still working on that first screenplay, it sometimes doesn't go anywhere. And I've seen that a lot of times. And I think that's because that first screenplay is a kind of good, um, you know, learning ground. I spent, I spent three, four years on that first screenplay trying to get it made. And it was a two, three million dollar film. And, I, you know, basically I learned that no one's going to give me two, three million dollars um, to make my first film. And then came the idea of like, you know what, what can I do for nothing? And very quickly after Getting past that roadblock, you know, the creative juices flowed. Pi, from when we first started working it to shooting it, was it took seven months to develop that script and get to set. But to be honest, um, it was years of ideas that I took from other places that uh, that I had worked on and not found a place for. So it was a seven-month writing process, but it took you know years to collect the material be able to get to that writing phase. This person asked about how much improvisation there is in Aronofsky's films, and also how he gets feedback from other artists. Well, it's important to have readers and a group of filmmakers and non-filmmakers that you work with and collaborate with. Um, you know, you want, it's so important to have feedback, you know, and I do it at every stage from the screenplay to the, uh, you know, when you're cutting the film, you know, you want, you want to get feedback. Um, and you look for patterns because every, you know, unless you, you have one of those exceptional friends that is great at stuff and uh, very clear, has a lot of clarity, um, most of the time you just look for patterns where people are repeating the same thing about something and then you realize, okay, there's an issue there. Um, everyone might not phrase it in the same way, but you pretty much can zero in on where the problem is. The first part of the question was about... Um, improvisation. Improvisation. I, look, um, you know, this latest film, The Wrestler, has a lot of improvisation. It depends, you know... Um, you know, words can be very, very specific, and sometimes when improv happens, the meaning changes, and or another scene that is what that, those words are about gets destroyed because information comes too early. So it's, and it's sometimes hard to know on set if you're uh, in the right place. So my general thing is like, you know, to, if you know what the scene's about, um, you know, there's lots of ways of getting there. And uh, I find that most actors are less, it's less about improving with the words and improving about what they're doing in the moment and how they're delivering the words and how they're, you know, because I, I think, you know, sometimes something great comes out of a joke shows up and, and humor and, and when there's a lot of freedom, things can happen like that. But um, in general, I think it's good to have that as a blueprint and then let the emotions be what's improving. You know, hey, instead of doing it that way, you know, is there another way of doing it? And then just see what comes out. 
Do you like doing rehearsals, line readings, things like that? <clears throat> line readings. Um, no, I Pi, um, you know, Pi Requiem and the Fountain, we did tremendous amount of rehearsals. And it was a great process. Um, and I think the actors really, really enjoyed it. Um, uh, Mickey Rourke does not rehearse. <laughs> Period. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, yeah, every once in a while, you get him on a good day, and he'll do a little bit. But uh, you know, he just wants to get get to it and do it. Um, and that was that was his process, and it worked for him. And uh, so I tried to construct a set that allowed that to happen for him. Um, so he was very comfortable with that. Yes, well, in the back there. Um, with the fountain. This person asked if, given the ups and downs of the production process how close his film The Fountain is to Aronofsky's intentions. Yeah. I, the Fountain, as completed, is, um, you know, represents the, you know, the best that I was at that time. For me, it's my, you know, for me, it's my greatest accomplishment. Um, and uh, it's a film I'm the most proud of. And um, I, uh, you know... It's, it's very interesting. I mean, uh, it is so extremely split, the responses I get from that film, um, that I think that means it's doing something right. Because, I, you know, the people that get it, you know, see it eight, nine, ten times, which is what I was hoping everyone would want to do with it. <laughs> and the people who don't get it, like, just completely attack it and trivi trivialize it and, um, you know, don't want to interact with it in any way. Um, and then, I mean, to be fair, there's people in the middle that are, um, you know, that are a mix of that. But, the, you know, to have those two extremes present that I run into all the time is, uh, I think that's exciting, you know. So for me, it was, uh, you know, the seven-year process. The fountain went through a lot of different versions of what it could have been. But that final product that's, you know, on the DVD is, um, you know, what I intended and was, you know, it, it was my, it, it was, you know, for me, my, it got me artistically relieved. It got rid of that bug or whatever you call it. So <laughs> it was completed. This person asked if there is a difference in approach when making a big sci-fi film like The Fountain as opposed to a smaller film like The Wrestler? I, I don't think so, actually. I think um, th there was a difference in my approach. I mean, for me, the first three films was a body of work. Um, they're kind of a trilogy for me, even though they're very unique. I kind of, I've been, it's kind of, it's very pretentious, but I call it the mind, body, spirit, with the <coughs> pie being mind and Requiem being body and fountain being spirit. But it, <clears throat> the reason they're linked is because I think my attitude as a filmmaker was very, very similar in those three films. Um, and they were sort of, it was, the entire thing was a movement towards what The Fountain was, which was, you know, a complete sort of construction of image and sound um, with, a, you know, just, we were very conscious of everything that was happening in that film. Um, and... Uh, so I think when I started working on The Wrestler, um, before I even started working on it, I kind of was like, you know, I want to try and do something very, very different to those first three films. Kind of inspired by Madonna, who teaches us to reinvent ourselves. And, um, <laughs> but I think it's important as a film, as, as some, you know, I think it's important that you got to, um, you got to change, and you got to be open to change and, um, you know, a lot, you, you know, my creative, the, the creative team that made those first three films, um, you know, kind of splintered apart because it was time. Um, so the wrestler has a completely new creative team. The only person that's back is Clint Mansell. But everyone else, the DP, the production designer, the producer, it's a whole new team. And so <coughs> I just felt that I wanted to just really do something very different. And I think when you see the wrestler, it's, you know, I think there's connections, I hope that you can see, um, you know, some connection, but I, I think it's something new. And I think that's just important, just to keep changing stuff. 
But if you could talk actually about that switch from uh, Matthew Libatique to Maurice Alberti. Yeah, uh, in, uh, those the were the two camera people. I, uh, Maddie, I worked on Pi Requiem and The Fountain. And, um, Mick, you know, Maddie was shooting Iron Man, <laughs> so he was busy. And oh no, he wasn't shooting Iron Man. He was on Spike, Spike Lee's Lee film. film yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, so he was pretty busy, and um, and uh, and the wrestler came together really quickly. Um, meaning not, it didn't really come together quickly. We spent years trying to get the money for Mickey Rourke to do the movie because no one wanted to give any money to, for a film with Mickey Rourke in it. And um, don't worry, Mickey knows that. So, uh, <laughs> <coughs> um, but then it just came together and we just were, from when the money came in, we were two months later shooting. So he wasn't around. Um, and so uh, I, was, I was kind of, Excited about you know you know finding someone new to work with and um, there was this uh, we look I, I met a bunch of camera people and uh, Maurice was kind of a strange choice because she hadn't been working in feature film for a while she shot way back happiness and velvet goldmine so she clearly had the chops and then she went off and did about ten years of documentary work because she had a kid and she wanted to spend more time in you know, uh, around with raising her child. So <clears throat> she shot Crumb and she shot um, Taxi to the Dark Side most recently and Enron and all these documentaries. And so I like the idea of someone who um, had shot um, features but also was a uh, understood documentary because when you see the film, it made, it made a lot of sense for the movie. <laughs> You're talking about, um, I know you said you had a, a relationship with Selby because of a short film, but can you talk about the process of how you, as a, as a filmmaker who wasn't really established, were able to get an option on this book and get him to collaborate on this book and get that film? Well, it has to go with um, Selby's spirit that he was able to trust someone. He, he charges $1,000 for the rights to Requiem for a Dream um, for an option. Um, but, uh, which was a lot of money at the time. We actually had to go to producer who I think is threatening to sue us right now because we never paid him back for the thousand dollars so um, and uh, anyway uh, but uh, you know so we got the rights and then um, it wasn't I can't to be fair it wasn't really we didn't sit in a room together writing it what happened is I went I was living in New York and I basically sat in my parents basement and in about four months pounded out a draft of it he had written a draft of it years before some producer hired him to write a draft, but he couldn't find it. And then one day he, his mom passed away and he was cleaning out her basement and he found the manuscript. So he sent it to me and it was amazing because 80% was identical. We had chosen the same scenes. And then I kind of fused those together. And then I got him to write some bridge scenes that needed because when you turn a novel into a screenplay, you have to cut out a lot of material, and then sometimes you have to build little bridges to make it make sense. So he wrote some dialogue there, and um, that was basically the extent of the collaboration. What inspires me? I mean, uh, you know, people that are electric in the room, you know, uh, actors that come in with a strong choice, you know, even if the choice is wrong, but they're committed to it and they do great stuff with it, you know, then you, you realize you have an actor that understand, you know, you know, that's, that just has a take on the material and then is just letting it flow. And then usually if that happens, you know, you always read, you, you try to always read some, give someone a couple of times to read. And then, you know, if you see something different, you know, so that there's lots of facets to what they're doing, then that's often a good sign. Uh, Mickey Rourke. Um, I was a big fan for a very long time. And then, you know, what's the most interesting thing about all the, you know, exciting um, press that we've been getting on it? It's like, you know, a week after, you know, the Golden Lion in Venice, Mickey's like, what, what you, he called me up and he's like, what did you do to me? There's paparazzi outside my house. You know, a week ago, I couldn't get a ham sandwich. And he hangs up the phone. So, uh, but what's interesting about it is, he was, you know, and I keep telling him, you know, two months ago you were a joke. Don't forget it. <laughs> now I hang up on him. And, uh, 
So uh, that, he was a joke, you know, he was a joke. But what's so interesting is I think what this whole, the reaction and everyone's into Mickey is that deep down inside we were all Mickey lovers. <laughs> and we really remember how great he was. And um, I think everyone's psyched that, wow, yeah, he's, he was great. And, what, you know, it's a shame, you know, part of the reason he was a joke is because, you know, he just destroyed his talent so badly that everyone, the only way people could deal with it, I guess, was just like, you know, just, just watch him humiliate himself more and more. So, but I think deep down inside, it's just revealing that there's a lot of Mickey lovers out there. And that's been kind of exciting, you know, because I think it's way beyond any kind of, reaction I could have thought. Like I was like, Mickey's great and this is a really good role for him and he's gonna shine, but we could never expect that people would, um, you know, really be connecting with his trip as they have been, you know. Is that fair? Talk a little bit about how you created Together with Ellen Burstyn, I'm sure the role that she does in Requiem, because remember when I first saw it, I was just astounded at how far she was willing to go with that role. Um, You know, it's, I guess it's that Lee Strasberg Institute for these, both of them are from that institute, so I don't know. They, um, you know, she just went for it. Um, I, you know, uh, I think when I first met her, you know, she was very shy, or I was the one who, I was terrified, <laughs> and, but it turned out she was, she told me years later, she was, you know, she's shy when she meets people, so. I didn't really know where it was going to go. And then I think as we got more and more comfortable and more and more trust, I mean, that's the big thing between an actor and director. It's all about trust. Um, And, you know, what I always talk to actors about is, you know, the thing I hate most is when you go to see a movie and there's an actor doing an amazing performance and the film sucks and they're out there emotionally doing all this great work, but there's nothing to support them because I know when the actor sees that film, they're going to go like that. So that the next time they're asked to go like that, they're going to be, um, you know, that much more timid. And you, the more, you know, the longer actors have been in the game, the more scars they've gotten by getting burnt. So I think it's important, you know, I try to, you know, you know, so far I'm doing pretty well where I'm like, you know, guys, come show. That's why we're here. Everyone wants to see everything you got. You know, we want to see you humiliate yourself. We want to see you show yourself. We want to see you um, be real, be human. And uh, if you're not, it's just a waste of what you are and what you're doing here. So, but of course they all say, yeah, sure, sure. But then, you know, it takes a while. And so with Mickey, I think, you know, we had a long, I mean, you asked about rehearsals and he didn't rehearse. But then again, uh, we, meaning we didn't rehearse doing the lines, but we spent three months going over every line of dialogue, and he basically turned each line of dialogue into a, he rephrased it so that he could say it, you know, because it was important that it comes, it works with who he is. Um, So there was, I guess, a lot of rehearsal. And then he spent two months training, so, and getting into the mindset. So it's a different process. It's not like you're in a room, um, you know, but then, you know, and then with Ellen, I think we did one or two days of rehearsal, and then we just basically worked it out on set. So. Let's see, we haven't asked so far. Yes. You can't ask a question. <laughs> he was my. He was on set. Uh-oh. Our wrestler. <laughs> How you doing? What's up? How are you? Um, what's your best advice to somebody who's going to make their first feature, and any advice on where to find the money? <laughs> um, <laughs> go talk to Superbad. <laughs> anyway, mutual inside joke. Um, I, I think you got to figure out, um, you know, you got to figure out what your first. You got to figure out a story you want to tell that you're dying to tell, because every single person in the world is going to say no to you. On the wrestler, you know, coming off of three movies and stuff, one financier in the entire world agreed to pay for the film. And not like it was the highest amount they paid. Only one in the entire world. <clears throat> Luckily, they didn't know they were the only one because they would have given us less money. But <clears throat> so basically, every single person in the business said no to the wrestler. You know, or they really said no to Mickey Rourke. To be honest, they said we love the script. You know, and but 
Mickey's not worth anything in the world, you know? So, so we, a lot of no's came in. On the fountain, every single person said no. On Requiem for a Dream coming off a of pie, every, after pie, everyone was like, what do you want to do next? You know, I sent them Requiem for a Dream. No one even returned my call, you know? <laughs> Eventually, we had to raise the money independently from a very green producer who's now a big-time producer, but uh, at the time, they wanted to take a chance. And so... Um, you gotta be, you gotta do something that you wanna tell the story to, because even, unless you're, unless you're writing, even Pretty Woman, I'm sure that a lot of people said no to, you know. Um, so that's the first thing is, don't be in the business unless you really gotta tell a story that you have to tell, because it's a really painful, painful, painful uh, occupation. Uh, and then. Um, you got to figure out a way to tell that story with no resources. So how do you get a $1,000 video camera, if you have to, and make that film? And then go make it with a $1,000 video camera if you have to. But you have to be willing to do that. This question was about Aronofsky. This question was about how Aronofsky talks to actors. Don't listen to anything they teach you in film school. <laughs> the only thing you should be doing in film school is meeting as many other students as you can and creating alliances because uh, that's the most important thing you get. And, you know, listen to the teachers a little bit, but don't listen to them that much. <laughs> it's a bunch of nonsense. But, the, uh, but that's the most important thing is creating collabor- collaborative groups, you know. That's the best thing you'll get out of film school. Um, Ask questions of your actors, like what? <laughs> How are you feeling right now? <laughs> what? I think, I, I think you know, it, it's a it's it's a strange situation when you're when you're in film school, you're working with actors in general that aren't necessarily that good, unless you're really lucky and you find someone who's good, because you're usually starting with beginning actors, or you or you're working with actors that you know, that aren't working that much. So that doesn't mean that they're not good, but there's a good chance they might not be. I mean, I dealt with a lot of people that weren't really, you know, it took a while to get. I think the more, the better actors you, you know, the more successful you get and you get a chance to work with better actors, um, it gets easier, the job, in a lot of ways, because they do their work, you know? Um, And then the job becomes about interpreting. The only thing I think that you can do is interpret text for them. So that, I think the first thing to do is just sit back and see what they bring and see what happens. Um, But then you should be, especially if you're the writer, you should be open to be able to discuss what is going on in the scene and work, not telling them how to do it. That's their job. and then when they do it a few times, if they're not doing it, you know, if there's another way that you think about, that you thought about it when you were writing it or when you were interpreting it to direct it, then you can sort of give them that idea of just saying, what, how, you know, and it's just an interpretation. It's like, you know, it says you walk to the door, but, you know, really what's happening here is your, you know, your shoes are uncomfortable as you're walking to the door. Or some, I mean, I, I, it could be anything. That's a bad example because it's not emotional, it's physical, but it's... Um, you know, you just sort of, uh, you can give them, and, if, and usually they'll, if you, it's about communication, and if they understand it, they'll get, you'll see their eyes light up or something, and they'll get an idea, and then you just see what they do with it. And you can slowly shape it that way. Um, but it's, it's, um, it's mostly looking at what they're doing and seeing if it works for the film. And if it's working for the film, you're fine. If it's not, then just sort of nudging hit in a certain direction could help. Is that okay, Sylvia? Yeah. That's all right? That's all right? Okay. (laughs) Time for a couple more. Yes. This question was about Aronofsky's use of music. Um, Well, usually the music doesn't come alive till the very, very end because it's, you know, Clint on, you know, middies, you know, that sort of sounds, gives you a sense of what it's going to sound like. But then in the case of that, you know, the Cronus Quartet, hadn't start to play, and as you know, as soon as David lifts up his, um, he's the lead of the Kronos. I mean, it just becomes a whole different level, 
Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's music. It's how you, it's, um, you know, you, you just watch it with the image and if it's breathing more life into it and pushing the emotion the right way, it really means something. But then again, you know, they, I don't recommend for a dream that you've been using for the NBA finals. So, uh, <laughs> you know, they have. And at the Rose Bowl, they've got the got it. And it's funny, Clint is a Clint, the composer is a huge uh, football soccer fan, and his team in Nottingham comes out to Requiem for a Dream now. <laughs> so he's like the man, you know. He's just like crying, you know. So it's just, you know. I've heard pie on the tube at, in Austria, you know, doing ads and the pie score comes up and it's like, so it's just, it's, you know, ultimately it's, you know, certain composers just have that thing that they can add. What's interesting was watching Clint really work hard and struggle for a long time on The Wrestler to create something that just wasn't as obvious um, in, in and pushing an emotion in a certain way and more just gave atmosphere. And that was a real hard challenge for him. It was really interesting to watch. This question was about Aronofsky's experience directing something he didn't write on The Wrestler. I think it's a combination. I mean, I, I, we spent two and a half years developing the script, so, you know, I didn't write it, and, but I, I definitely, I think you have to do the job as a director. You have to get into the text really deeply to really understand what's going on. You have to understand what each scene is about. So I, no matter what, it's a lot of work. Um, it's definitely a lot easier if you're not in a room alone, you know, trying to write, you know. It's very hard. Writing alone is pretty hard. So uh, there's something great about it. But I like it both ways, and uh, we'll see what comes. I haven't been... Um, I haven't yet had the uh, inspiration to write something again. I think that's, it, writing for me is, you know, it's one of the purest artistic acts because you're alone and you have to sit there alone and try and get into that zone of what the characters are doing and what the scene's about and to create that space. I just haven't had that energy to do that yet. So I think it'll come back at some point. You just can't force it. This person asked about what kinds of challenges a young filmmaker should expect when trying to start out. Well, um, I mean, you know, uh, it's endless the, uh, the amount, as I said, it's endless the amount of people that will tell you no, unless you're doing something wrong. I mean, if everyone's telling you yes, you know, um, I, I, I think the stories that matter in general are just things that haven't been done before. And that's kind of what I've always tried to do is try to, you know, I, I, I just got to say the New York Times, Stephen Holden wrote, wrote, did you read that thing? He called the, the he called the wrestler shameless Oscar bait. <laughs> okay, here's the pit. Here. But hold on, shameless Oscar bait means that it, we were, when we start, we, we were shameless when we, when we cast, when we put this movie together, we sat around, we said, okay, here's the idea. Mickey Rourke, as a professional wrestler, we're gonna win Best Picture. It's like, I mean, you know. Let's add a we staple gun. Yeah, exactly, we'll put a staple gun in it, and you know, and put Marissa Tomei in a G-string, and we're, we're on the stage. Can I it's ask like, you a question, you brought up Marissa Tomei? Yeah. I, I don't know how you got two Not Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. She was, I don't know how you got her. I, I mean, that to me, she, she must have not just trusted you. Yeah. I think she secretly went and got lessons or something. Oh, yeah, she worked, she worked hard. She, she worked amazing. hard. Yeah, yeah, I she mean, worked hard. They, they were like professional people at what they were doing. I think you've been spending a lot of time in strip clubs, so. <laughs> <laughs> to know how good a dancer she was. <laughs> <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a feeling on that note, oh, yeah, we should yeah, say yeah. thank you very, you very much. much for Darren, and thank you. Thank you Thanks, sir. Much. Thank you. Thank you. 
The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.